Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Bi-Weekly Geopolitical Report podcast for August 29th, 2022. Might food be weaponized in a deglobalized world with at least two sharply divided political and economic groupings, one dominated by the United States, the other dominated by China, including Russia? Confluence market strategist Patrick Farron Hernandez joins us today to discuss the latest in his series of reports on how deglobalization might impact investors. First, Patrick, as you've noted, Confluence has been anticipating this overall deglobalization trend for over a decade. What's the very latest? Has the trend accelerated? Well, hi, Phil. First, thanks so much for uh, having me on the show. To answer your question, yes, the whole process of deglobalization has definitely accelerated over the last couple of years, and especially this year. You can see that in all kinds of developments. With Moscow's invasion of Ukraine, you've seen multiple European countries working to sever their economic ties with Russia. You've seen various developing countries starting to hoard commodities while Uh, whose supply chains uh, have been disrupted by the conflict. House Speaker Pelosi's recent trip to Taiwan has shown how being tough on China is now firmly a bipartisan effort in the U.S., and that's prompting more companies to consider moving their operations out of China and out of Taiwan. It's very clear to us that the process of deglobalizing is happening faster, and the world really is breaking up into relatively separate geopolitical and economic blocks. And does deglobalization mean that more inflation is unavoidable? That's one key implication of the process. Our view is that as global supply chains get disrupted or become more subject to disruption, investors will put a risk premium on commodity prices. In addition, manufacturers will try to move production closer to home, which often will mean moving to higher-cost locales. Faced with a more uncertain world, businesses will probably also abandon the super-efficient, low-cost, just-in-time inventory systems that were so popular during the period of globalization. They'll hold more inventory and they'll probably make sure they have more excess capacity available to meet surging demand. All of that's going to keep prices higher than they otherwise would be. Patrick, in an earlier report, you discussed how the world's energy and mineral resources are divided among the competing camps. And the picture was not positive for the United States. We run a deficit on several key resources. Now, as we turn to agricultural resources and products, would you say the United States is in a much stronger position? Yes, uh, that's very clear in the trade statistics. After all, the U.S. is the world's preeminent agricultural producer. But remember, we think that as the world breaks up into competing blocks, it's just as important to think in terms of how the U.S.-led camp will perform. Fortunately, many of our closest allies are also important agricultural producers or important agricultural markets. As we mentioned in the report, trade patterns really differ depending on the agricultural product that you're looking at. But still, in overall terms, the U.S. bloc is in a strong position in terms of its food security and its ability to leverage farm markets for geopolitical leverage purposes. Now, on the food front, just how vulnerable is China and its bloc? 
Well, China specifically is much more vulnerable than people realize. For example, it has almost 20% of the world's population, but only 7% of its arable land. On top of that, it has now lost so much farmland to development that its arable acreage is now almost down to the minimum that the government considers necessary for its food security. China currently produces only about 60% of its food needs, and that number is dropping. Finally, some of the key partners in the evolving China-led bloc are not big farm countries, and as a group, they're relatively dependent on food imports as well. In your report, you look in some detail at five key agricultural products, soybeans, wheat, corn, beef, and pork. China depends heavily on imports for four of these five, excluding wheat. Where is China getting what it needs? Again, it it depends a lot on which of these products you're talking about. But I would say China and its bloc are most dependent on two particular classes of countries. First, the big agricultural producers in the U.S.-led bloc. And second, Brazil and Argentina in the China-leaning bloc. Now, would you say Brazil and Argentina, as key exporters of these products, will gain political and economic leverage as the U.S. and China camps compete in a deglobalized world? Yes, and that's one of the key implications of our study. Brazil and Argentina are so important to the China bloc that we think Beijing will have to be aggressive in trying to keep on their good side. By the same token, as the U.S.-China rivalry heats up, we think the U.S. and its allies will try to peel Brazil and Argentina out of China's orbit by offering them any number of incentives. In any case, those two countries could well enjoy a lot of leverage in the evolving situation. And do you already see some evidence of this leverage in those two countries? Well, it's probably too early to see it clearly right now, in part because Brazil has been dealing with so many political issues in recent years, and Argentina's government is embroiled in a debt refinancing fight with the IMF. And on China's side, President Xi is trying to just make China more self-sufficient in crops like soybeans. However, we don't think that program will be so successful. At some point, we think Xi will realize he needs to take stronger steps to tie Brazil and Argentina into the Chinese orbit, Washington will likely respond with stronger incentives to keep them closer to the U.S. bloc, and both Brazilian Buenos Aires will likely start looking for lucrative concessions. Patrick, one more question on Brazil and Argentina. Are there any signs of instability in those two countries that the United States should be immediately concerned about and work to help resolve? Well, in Brazil, a key question is how the internal politics will play out. Right-wing populist President Bolsonaro is widely expected to lose his re-election bid this fall to leftist former President Lula da Silva, and China could see that political change as an opening to exploit. More to the point, Argentina is facing a severe debt issue and potential default and devaluation. Obviously, China might be tempted to ride to the rescue with financing or some other type of aid to tie Argentina to it. What other countries that exist outside the strictly defined U.S. and China camps are well positioned in terms of agricultural products? 
That's one of the great findings in this analysis. Other than Brazil and Argentina, most significant agriculture producers are pretty firmly locked up in either the U.S. bloc or the China bloc. About the only other one is Uruguay, which we rate as a neutral country. Patrick, would you say this food fight in a deglobalizing world helps us see the Ukraine war in a different light? I think so. Ukraine and Russia are both major grain exporters, and the disruptions in Ukraine's exports quickly had a big impact on its traditional customers. Even though a small amount of Ukrainian grain is now getting out to world markets, many countries around the world are facing reduced supplies, higher prices, hunger, and even social unrest. In a more fractured world of the future, we suspect that such conflict-generated food supply disruptions will be more frequent. We began our discussion with the question, might food be weaponized? Is the U.S. camp's current superiority in agricultural products an effective deterrent to potential efforts to withhold energy reserves from Europe and the United States? Well, not quite yet. After all, remember that it's Russia that's threatening to cut off Europe's energy supplies, but it's China that is most vulnerable to food supply disruptions. All the same, we do think China and Russia will grow closer together over time, with China being the dominant player, by the way. Then, when China has much more control over Russia and the other members of its bloc, the U.S. and its bloc will likely be able to use agricultural goods as leverage over China. To discipline Russia. That's the world we think we're heading toward. That world is still developing, but we think it's clear that we're going there, and so we think investors should start preparing. So, where do commodities fit as investments in a deglobalized world? Well, we've been arguing for some time that commodities should now be a bigger part of many investors' portfolios. If the traditional portfolio was 60% stocks and 40% bonds, we think the benchmark asset allocation going forward should probably be something like 60% stocks, 25% bonds, and 15% commodities. Of course, commodities are cyclical, and they can depreciate in times of recession or economic weakness. So in our asset allocation strategies, we would expect to adjust our commodities allocation based on the economic cycle. Nevertheless, we think geopolitical tensions, fractured supply chains, higher inflation, and other aspects of deglobalization argue for a higher and more consistent allocation to commodities than might have made sense in the last few decades. Patrick, which do you prefer, energy or agriculture? And this is one of the most interesting aspects of the study as well. We think the specific allocation to commodities should be weighted more toward mineral commodities, including energy, industrial metals, and precious metals. Those are the commodities where the China-led bloc often has the bulk of the world's reserves and production. And as U.S.-China tensions rise, investors in the U.S. and its bloc could find that such mineral commodity supplies are being withheld by the Chinese bloc. Their prices would naturally rise. And even when tensions aren't so bad, investors may price in a higher risk premium for those commodities. 
Now, in contrast, the U.S. and its bloc are in the driver's seat for many key agricultural commodities. And so they would be well positioned to withhold supplies from China and its bloc. Doing that could create a glut of farm goods for the U.S. and its bloc, which would push down their prices. In sum, we think a U.S. investor's strategy going forward should put more emphasis on commodities in general, but specifically on mineral commodities over agricultural ones. Thank you, Patrick. For our listeners, if you're interested in more details about how particular agriculture commodities fare in a globalized world, we do recommend Patrick's written report on this issue. Go to confluenceinvestment.com, click on the bi-weekly geopolitical report tab on the right side of the page near the top. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We wish to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler.